Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Wall Street's view of the U.S. defense budget outlook as lawmakers work toward a deal. Germany's rearmament drive appears to stall. Worries over the safety of America's air traffic control system. A big week for Boeing as China's 787 deliveries are to restart and P-8s are going to be going to Canada, but the company was dropped from the U.S. Air Force's contest for a new doomsday nuclear command and control uh, aircraft. More change at Spirit Aerosystems, Textron cuts its workforce, and Rolls-Royce exits electric propulsion and more. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tusa of the Independent Equity Research Firm Agency Partners, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Gentlemen, uh, welcome back uh, to the program. Wouldn't be Sunday unless we were all together. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thank you very much, as always, Vago. Yeah, great to be on, Vago. Thanks. Uh, indeed, uh, great, uh, great seeing. And by the way, great seeing Ron and Richard this week was an absolute pleasure to spend some time with you guys. Uh, Ron, when you were in town and Richard, I think we got together four times this week. Uh, so, uh, all, all was well on that front. Sash, uh, I'm sorry, we won't see you, but before the end of the year or so, uh, there's always 2024. Um, Ron, uh, walk us through how the group, uh, performed overall. Uh, kind of an interesting week, right? Folks are going into the holiday season, reacting to a whole bunch of macroeconomic news, as well as some corporate uh, specifics. Um, walk us through how the group performed and what were the major drivers? Yeah, again, I think the, the big big thing in the week is the is the macro uh, environment. The 10-year yield ended the week below 4.2. It ended the week at 4.9%. Um, and just to remind everybody, not that long ago, um, October 19th, the 10-year yield was 5%. So to have it drop 80 basis points in a relatively quick period of time, the market is placing bets, essentially, that the Fed's going to cut rates, uh, and maybe as soon as March. Um, if that happens, okay, fine. Now, the bad news is if that does not happen, then the market will have to adjust. So at least that's where the chips are getting you know placed right now uh, on the Fed. And that, that has implications for the stocks. So um, generally speaking, um, stocks, in our name, uh, stocks in our universe are... In, in the whole market writ large that are more kind of economically sensitive, interest rate sensitive, that kind of thing, um, actually perform better. So if you look in our world, uh, you know, names that would you would associate with that would be you know, commercial aerospace, some of the smaller names, um, that kind of thing. So it, when you look at well, who was our best performer this week, it was Embraer, it was up almost 15%. Now there was some good news out for Embraer this week, right? I mean, right. They, I got an order for 25 airplanes, additional add-on order for 25 airplanes from Porter that at list price would be a little over $2 billion. Um, And everybody knows they don't sell at list price, but that would be the list price. Um, so for them, that was a big order. Stock was up 15%. Now, that's more than you'd expect on that kind of order, right? Because of what I mentioned about interest rates. The S&P was up about 80 basis points. Boeing was up 6.5%. Spirit was up 8%. So clearly... Um, the things associated with OE did much better. Um, and then when you look at defense, Northrop was up about uh, just under 2%. Raytheon was up 3%. L3 Harris was up about 2%. Uh, and then the names like, you know, Textron, you mentioned, had some news. It was down um, maybe three quarters of a percent. And then some of the naval names, uh, BWX was flat. HII was flat. Uh, and GD was up about a percent. So 
you definitely saw this bias towards commercial, towards OE. And I think a lot of that had to do with interest rates. Oil, again, this is sort of boring. You know, oil, WTI was $74. I think last week it was 75. Brent was 79. I think last week it was 80. Uh, and then the VIX ended the week around 12. And that's where it was last week, too. And um, Ron, you were in town. You got a chance to talk uh, to a lot of very interesting people, uh, both uh, from the Hill and across the think tank world, uh, about where defense spending's going. What were what were your takeaways? Because you wrote about that in your note on on what base case is and what you know, and the fact that you actually see some upside here, uh, despite the political chaos. Yeah. So I think I think the first point is on you know the political chaos. I think everybody we spoke to said that you know things. Things in DC are as chaotic as they've ever been, maybe that they've ever ever seen in their careers. Uh, that being said, um, there's a case that maybe, just maybe, um, Congress can thread the needle and we can we can get to a budget. I think the consensus view is, however, we'll end up with some sort of extended CR. Uh, I would say also the consensus view was we would not have a CR that would last in defense all year, but we could have an extended one. Um, it's interesting. The budget folks in in Washington tend to focus on on the baseline budget, really focus on the baseline. Um, and they don't talk much about the supplemental. Um, we can peel back the onion on maybe why that's the case, but ultimately from an investor perspective, and from my perspective, I really don't care. Um, because when you roll them all up, if the budget is up year over year and, and it's up in places that can get to the contractors, that's what really matters. Uh, so there was some discussion around, you know, baseline budgets could be flat, maybe down a little bit, maybe up a little bit. But that this $100 billion or something like that supplemental will get through. And if that's the case, that's a big chunk of money and, and spending is up. So kind of my conclusion was when it's all said and done, when you get through the, the fiscal year 24 process, as messy, as noisy um, as it may be, that ultimately the budget's going to be up, that if you follow the votes, that that's the, the majority of votes in both parties want to um, increase defense spending and want to support a lot of different priorities. You know, including you know the long-term pacing threat, China, what that all means, and then more shorter-term things. Uh, you know, most markedly, the Ukraine, Israel, and then replenishing these inventories that have been drawn way, way down. Um, from conversations we had with the companies, um, you know, as an example, you know, Lockheed Martin, uh, you know, their their missile fire control business will get some growth, um, some meaningful growth out of just refilling inventories of legacy stuff. Um, and that, and that, that's significant. Um, we also had the opportunity to visit, you know, Northrop space business. Um, and that, you know, that was very, very impressive. Um, and, and one of the big messages there was when you look at the space community right now, there is a, a, a I think a debate going on, you know, had you gone back in time two years ago, I think the view was everything would be, you know, proliferated small satellites and that's where everything was going. And then, and then it seems like, well, maybe they they put their foot on the gas too much on that, and and I think the best analogy to think about it is, you know, not every ship in the navy can be an aircraft carrier. And that would be an exquisite satellite, very expensive, very capable, but very expensive. Not every satellite can be a frigate, but you need a balance between the two, and you need to find what is the right kind of carrier battle group. And it seems like that's what's going on in space right now. Um, so I think that's fascinating. And then the other thing we heard across many different companies is hypersonics is going much slower than anybody thought it would be at this point. So I think those were some of the biggest takeaways. Uh, Sash, uh, 
Uh, walk us through, uh, right, same question in, in Europe as I ask uh, almost every uh, week, and also how you think Ukraine sentiment is playing into this, right? I mean, there's this increasing sense uh, the war has stalemated. It's been knocked off the front pages by uh, Israel's uh, war on Hamas. Uh, and, you know, Russia is building up capabilities, and there's this worry, whether expressed in newspapers here, The Economist, and elsewhere, that you know we're we're we might not be on a good vector. There's increasing fracturing that's happening in Ukrainian uh, politics, right? I mean, they they may be doling out very heavy casualties on the Russians, but ultimately we are where we are. Walk us through how all of these sentiments played in the market and and what it meant for the group. The aerospace and defense group in Europe last week was flat to down, but within that there was a really big spread between the civil stocks that were up, average of three and a half percent, and the defense stocks that were off over two and a half percent. So I'm in a six percent spread overall. That's actually very, very wide uh, for uh, the, the stocks we cover. That's as, you know, as wide as we've, we've seen it for most of the, you know, for any given week this year. Uh, and that, that that was a really interesting week. Um, uh, you know, if you look at the, the big performer was Rolls-Royce. Rolls-Royce was up 13 percent last week. We'll come back to this, but they had a uh, a very, very successful capital markets day, set new midterm targets, and investors really, really like what they're hearing uh, for, uh, about Rolls-Royce. Where was the underperformance? The underperformance was the mid-cap defence stocks. Hensolt off 8.2%. They had a capital markets day the previous week. And, you know, there's frankly, there's been a bit of bit of selling since then. Uh, Kinetic, they had a, a capital markets day uh, about three weeks before. And uh, investors just don't feel terribly interested in Connecticut mode. Mid-cap stocks are illiquid, uh, and so it doesn't take very much selling to, to, to see them coming off. But it was really interesting to you know, see this spread between... I mean, and, you know, Rolls-Royce was not the only civil stock up. Airbus was up 2.5% on really virtually no news, uh, and some of the subcontractors were as well. Um, yeah, so you know, what are investors saying about defence at the moment? Uh, the, the thesis that we hear from the economists, for example, that you know the Russians are winning, um, isn't a thesis that investors that we talk to recognise. What investors are worried about, though, is that the war comes to an end. It comes to an end quite abruptly due to a negotiated settlement of some sort. And that if that happens, whether they like it or not, whether they believe in European defence or not, their defence stocks are just going to be a, worth you know, a lot less on the on the day of the announcement. So look at defense stocks through the whole of 22 and in 2023. On days, weeks when it's been perceived that Ukraine is doing well and hence that the war might come to a favorable end, defense stocks come off a lot. On days right. when Russia does well and hence um, there is a, you know, an increased belief that the West is going to have to, to further arm Ukraine, then um, Defence stocks have, have tended to do really well. It, this is incredibly simplistic, but you can you can plot this on every single share price graph. So I'm very puzzled by the uh, you know on the one hand people saying the Russians are winning, uh, and on the other hand the fact that defence stocks, particularly this week, have been very very uh, have, have been genuinely weak. And more investors that we've talked to this week have been worried about a negotiated settlement, which means an enforced settlement, which means a settlement that nobody likes than they have about Ukraine winning and, you know, there being genuine peace on the eastern frontiers of Europe. Um, and give us, uh, you know, let's use this as an opportunity to dive into uh, what uh, Rolls-Royce actually said, right? Because for some, it's an exit from the electric uh, propulsion uh, business. 
uh, on the other, but you're talking about actually far deeper restructuring and, and stuff that the city uh, liked. Walk us through what specifically they did and why you think it's so tectonic, because you've said this is uh, one of the biggest stories of the year. Yeah, well, I mean, um, Rolls-Royce exiting from electric power. Why are they doing that? They're doing it because they cannot see a business model. They don't think that urban air mobility and the extension of that into regional air mobility effectively is going to be a business that uh, takes off, let alone that they can make money in this decade. So, I mean, they're really they're putting uh, their and their shareholders money where, frankly, our mouth has been for you know several years. Uh, they just think the the UAM uh, electric power market isn't there and that from their perspective, which is predominantly tilted towards wide body, long haul, that is not a market that is going to be easy to decarbonize, uh, to, to decarbonize, and that if it does happen, it's at least as likely to happen through um, uh, SAF uh, or uh, hydrogen as anything else, but it sure as hell isn't going to happen through electric. Uh, and there was a lot of comment on the sidelines at, at the Rolls Capital Market say about just how hard electric is to put into uh, medium and or, you know medium even by our standards short haul 150 seat airliners, let alone long haul airliners. Um, so you know they're pulling the plug on it. Somebody else can have the fun there. But uh, very very interesting when you contrast that with the UAM uh, stocks, Rolls Royce, which you know has been offering power plants to a lot of them, has just decided to throw in the towel because it's worth uh, you know it's not worth their dollar. The other big thing that comes out of Rolls Royce is that they are finally starting to catch up in terms of profitability with all their peers. GE, Pratt & Whitney, uh, Safran, you know, who are the leaders, they've been making and are making margins in the high teens, and Rolls-Royce has been, you know, single, oh, you know, double digits uh, if. Um, that's now started to converge, partly because um, their wide-body customers are starting to fly, and partly because they've taken a... Uh, a, a ton of costs out there and they're managing the, the, the company, uh, you know, very, very tightly. It was, you know, you don't have to believe all of their forecasts for uh, cash flow over the next couple of years. We certainly don't. Uh, you know, we, we take a haircut to, to elements of that. But it, it just seems to be, you know, they've come through way the worst of their own self-inflicted problems and then the, the pandemic. And um, Chief Executive Chief Egan Bilic, you know, gives the impression of really having a much tighter control of the company in in this upturn than uh, you know we feared. Um, I uh, think that that's an incredible development, given that the company uh, a couple of years ago uh, built uh, and and demonstrated the world's fastest battery uh, uh, powered. Uh, aircraft, the spirit of innovation, which is just a stunningly gorgeous airplane when you see it uh, in person or even in photographs uh, that hit uh, almost 400 miles an hour, right? 387 miles an hour, uh, which was uh, a record. So it's, uh, you know, an incredible amount of technology the company developed, but it's an interesting reflection on the on the market. Richard, I want to go to you because you've always been a big fan of uh, EVTOL aircraft in all their capacities. Uh, but what, what the, but putting aside uh, your individual and somewhat unreasonable personal biases, <laughs> to, uh, some of them actually well-founded in, in the data, right? What, what does this move mean to you? And Ron, I want to get your uh, sense on this as sort of the engineer and somebody who sits, um, you know, who's also looking at what this means as a long-term trend. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, you know, I'm surprised it took them so long because uh, everything Sash said is uh, exactly spot on. You know, given the fact that they were beaten up by the pandemic and by 
shall we say, questionable strategic decisions for the prior decade, more than any other large cap aerospace company, arguably, um, you got to focus on your core. And that means, you know, H350 XWB execution, especially in the light of some rather unfavorable comments at the Dubai Air Show. Um, And of course, uh, you know, (laughs) banking on more shop visits for H350 XWB as the the hours rack up uh, and the military side. And of course, for the slightly longer haul, um, Ultrafan and derivations thereof. Um, This looks really speculative. This is the kind of, you know, long-term, high-risk, maybe some payoff sort of thing that you do if you're flush with cash, which they certainly aren't. I guess my number one takeaway is I'm surprised it took them so long because, of course, a few years ago, they dissolved that EFAN JV, I believe, with the with Siemens, with that uh, that modified 146. It's pretty clear that, you know, it, as Sash said, you know, SAF, maybe hydrogen, maybe something, but really electric is for this entirely speculative UAM and regional air mobility and whatever else market, which may one day produce something. But yeah, you're right to, to allude to my uh, my high, my uh, high level of doubtfulness on the topic. Uh, Ron, your take? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything that, you know, that, that Richard and Sasha said. I, what I would add, though, from an engineering point of view, developing electric propulsion effective electric propulsion is a completely different skill set than you know doing it what you do with uh, you know, a more traditional jet engine i mean one is all about thermodynamic cycles and mechanical and thermodynamics uh, and the other one's a deep 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 really hardcore cutting edge electrical engineering problem and you know companies that really focus on electrical power management would be better suited to, to deal with it. You know what I mean? So what, what am I trying to say? Like if you were looking at uh, a, a company like a, a DRS that's doing the propulsion for the, the Columbia or um, you know, it, that kind of thing, or some of the, 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 the newer startup companies today that are really focusing on the, the, the electrical propulsion side of these, these type of engines or motors or propulsion systems, it, it takes that kind of focus. And, you know, I mean, if, if like Richard said, you, you, you have a choice, you can focus on your core or you can focus on this, but doing this right is going to take a really, really deep commitment and probably, um, you know, a lot of capital. And anyway, so it, it's, I'm not surprised by it, but uh, if you're really good at making a jet engine, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're set up to do electric propulsion because it's a very, very fundamentally different skill set and on many levels it's just a very very fundamentally different problem right uh and and it's it is fascinating and it's going to be interesting obviously right i mean we're looking at uh battery technology keeps getting better uh power management keeps getting better so it's going to be interesting to see whether or not at any point it becomes something as attractive you know when and the 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 vision matches what the technology and reality will be right i mean to your original point when you burn aviation fuel your airplane is getting lighter uh, the battery when it depletes is still the battery, right? But, you know, right blended wing body allows you to do stuff. You have higher payload. 
There are, so it's going to be very interesting to see how everything in this market goes. And a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Um, Sash, you had one thing you wanted to add. Go ahead. Yeah, um, thanks. I mean, just following up on Richard's comment about uh, the you know, pretty negative comments that have been coming out of Emirates uh, and the their, their perception that the Trent XWB is an uncompetitive engine, particularly for the A350-1000. What we thought was very, very interesting was the degree to which Rolls-Royce just brushed that off and said, effectively, that's our core, not Emirates. And investors really like that. Investors have seen Rolls-Royce chase after individual customers with what have turned out to be uncompetitive uh, commercial terms for engine contracts for, for decades. I mean, it used to be what Rolls-Royce just did every single day of the, uh, of, of the year. And now Rolls-Royce is actually applying a, a real degree of financial discipline uh, and saying it's not worth them you know, offering really unpleasant <laughs> financial terms for, for an Emirates offer at this stage. They will upgrade the Trent XWB, we're sure of that, probably with uh, ultrafan technology, but in their own time and for probably an A350 re-engineering at, at Airbus's time. So that's a sea change for roles. It also marks the fact that Emirates just isn't as powerful as it used to be. Emirates is a long-haul carrier, but one of you know a number. It's not the long-haul carrier that can necessarily get every single uh oem dancing to their their tune at the same time and i think that was a you know said investors really like that richard i want to have you spearhead this conversation boeing uh had both a good and and maybe a little bit not so good week uh on the good news 12 787s will be going uh to uh, uh china uh, restarting uh, what were you know deals and deliveries that were halted uh, by the Chinese government in the wake of the pandemic and you know the squabbles with the United States, uh, we had uh, up to sixteen uh, P8s. Uh, going to go uh, to uh, Canada to replace uh, the Royal Canadian Air Force's vaunted uh, Aurora aircraft, which are the Canadian variants of the P-3. And uh, we also saw Boeing eliminated from the U.S. Air Force competition to basically replace its own aircraft, the uh, E-4B Doomsday aircraft that are the nation's nuclear command and control aircraft. Sierra Nevada is left in that competition. What what does all this mean uh, for uh, Boeing? From, from your perspective and, you know, Ron and Sash, you know, you guys take a bite at this as well. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, you know, certainly a lot more good than bad. You know, uh, um, obviously Chinese carriers were one of the launch customers, were some of the launch customers for the 787. It's uh, good to be back in their good graces, you know, but there are multiple phases of getting back into China. One is, of course, reactivation of the MAX fleet, which happened the last uh, last of all the markets in the world. Second is resuming deliveries. And that, of course, really hasn't begun yet. So this is definitely a harbinger of that beginning, a very strong step. Um, and then the third, of course, will be actual orders, which haven't been placed since 2017, I believe. So it multiple phases, this is a good step. But, you know, the one that really matters is orders. Because, you know, that's everyone had been counting upon China as the strong growth story. Orders are, you know, a good way of showing that that strong growth story is at least partly coming back. Um, the P8 decision is certainly very welcome news. You know, it, people have tried. Not a lot of competition out there. You know, Bombardier proposed a homegrown alternative, I believe, using a global express business jet. 
it was clearly not what the Canadian military wanted. The P-8 is still pretty much the only long-range maritime patrol and submarine aircraft. Bad news is it's on, you know, it's running out of runway. A uh, few more years of production. So it's kind of like last chance at the uh, P-8 orders corral. Um, this is a great program, but it's probably going to be wound down by the end of the decade. Uh, third bit of news, of course, doomsday planes. You know, <laughs> given the fact that Boeing hasn't covered itself with glory on the Air Force One program, which, of course, is a similar sort of uh, similar sort of project, you know, 7-4 is modified for special mission work in small numbers. And even more, I don't want to say gallingly, but uh, amusingly, what's the word? Blame some of the problems on labor. I mean, these are two aircraft. You know, <laughs> I, I imagine the Air Force probably wasn't in love with that answer. Um, that probably wasn't very good for the outcome of this project. But again, generally more good than bad this week for Boeing. Uh, Ron, uh, your sense overall, and Sash, when I come back to you, it's going to be on uh, German rearmament because I know you you have more to add on that than you do necessarily on Boeing and, and China. Go ahead, Ron. Yeah, the the, the start of deliveries of 787s, if indeed that occurs before the end of the year, will be, I think, welcomed by the street. Um, and that's an indicator, too, most likely that we'll start to see 737s, too. So, um, you know, any deliveries to China on either production line would be positively viewed. Um, I would guess. Uh, on the selection of the P-8, uh, again, I, I follow Richard's comments, I mean, because I'm not all very not very surprised by that, uh, and clearly that's what the, the Canadian military wanted. Uh, and then on the Doomsday uh, aircraft, I mean, I hadn't been following that very closely. And and again, I think Richard is, you know, kind of right on that. Um, on the VC-25, the presidential aircraft, um, they, they, they really weren't, you know, covered with glory in that. And you know, one can imagine that that um, has to have uh, impact, impacted this program as well. Um, it is uh, it is interesting to see how Sierra Nevada is sort of picking these spots and driving the ball forward. And it's it's fascinating to really watch the company and see how its uh, strategy, uh, you know, is unfolding because it's, it's sort of landing key wins in kind of key places that then become building blocks for what they want to do, right? Which is, which is sort of interesting and sort of the way um, privately held defense companies have a tendency of acting right because they are putting some of their own skin in the uh, the game in order to be competitive and maybe don't have that kind of cushion margin that Boeing and some of the other uh, uh, companies historically have had right where you can sort of lowball to, to get in and make it up uh, make it up later so it's 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 fascinating and a reminder to our audience to check out our award winning weekly podcasts Cavus Ships hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co-host with our very own JJ Gertler. Uh, Sash, uh, uh, point on German rearmament before we go uh, to uh, Spirit Aero Systems, Textron, uh, and uh, and more. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I mean there was a, a article in um, a New York newspaper this week, basically saying German rearmament has stalled. I just say, uh, having spent a uh, thick end of a week in Germany, I don't recognize that at all. I think what's been fascinating about Germany is that, yes, the rearmament process um, after February of 2022 and the invasion of Ukraine took a long time to get going. The German budgetary process is still, frankly, uh, pretty, you know, arthritic. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there have been problems with that. But 
you know, the, all the German companies that we talked to, uh, you know, pretty much said the same thing. The, the 100 billion euro special fund, which was the big announcement of Chancellor Scholz in uh, March of last year, all of the orders for that will have been placed by the end of the first quarter of next year. So F-35s, P-8s, CH-47 Chinooks, Eurofighters, armoured vehicles, ammunition, and a whole lot, uh, and, and a whole lot more. Um, I, I didn't expect all of those orders to be placed. Now, it clearly will then take some time to disperse the, the money for that because you can't just turn on a tap and get F-35s uh, you know, in, in, in a couple of quarters' time. But the fact that they, the budgetary system has responded and got all of that through is very impressive. Uh, the German Defence Secretary, um, uh, Mr. Pistorius, is clearly looking now at an increase in the force structure in Germany. I mean, actually increasing the, the number of uniformed bodies, which no European country has done in the, in the last couple of decades, because he realises German armed forces are too small. And um, the next step then is to work out, after the special fund is, is spent, how then to increase the budget to, you know, to sustain German defence spending at or, in our view, well in excess of 2% of GDP. That's a nice problem to have three years out, probably three, four years out even. But I don't recognise this thing about German rearmament stalling at all. I, you know, we really got an impression of momentum picking up quite impressively uh, over the summer into Q3 and going well into 2024. Uh, which is uh, which is great. I mean, the Titan vendor, uh, the $100 billion fund, and then uh, the big budget increase uh, that uh, Germany uh, had discussed uh, as well. Um, let me uh, shift. Uh, Ron, uh, start us off on Spirit Era Systems, uh, right management change uh, there, and I think expected by some, especially in the wake of Pat Shanahan, you know, the, the transition in corporate leadership from uh, Tom Gentile uh, to Pat Shanahan, and now we have a change in the position of the chief uh, operating officer, uh, and again, sort of coming out of the company's challenges uh, on the commercial aircraft, I mean, 737 uh, work. Uh, and then also talk to us a little bit about Textron and its uh, jobs cut. Obviously, Textron is the parent company of Bell, the sponsor of this program. Uh, but you also picked up uh, a little bit of uh, news flow when you were here in, in, in Washington, sort of more uh, broadly. Go ahead. Yeah, so a, a couple points. I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody was really surprised by the, the move at, at Spirit. They were having clearly uh, uh, operational execution um, issues. Uh, new CEO is going to assign new people that's what happened so i think that's just sort of cut and dry uh, on textron you know some of their end markets are doing quite well like the textron aviation uh, but then some of their industrial markets might be slowing so um given that you know and a, a um, labor adjustment is, is probably not all that surprising maybe the timing a little bit i don't think anybody really saw that coming but um you know it's just i think it's just the nature of what's going on in some of their in in some of their end markets uh, and and then finally, I think you know an interesting thing to keep an eye on um, when you look at the at the U.S. Army. One of the things we did pick up in some of our conversations this week is an increasing interest in the Army in doing an, an upgraded Blackhawk, uh, maybe called a Smart Blackhawk, and that might um, take a little bit of the wind out of the sails of uh, the Flora program. Uh, I think it's too soon to tell, but I think that's something to watch because uh, right. that did that did come up in a, in a couple of our conversations. The Army tries to make that technological leap 
uh, with a V280 to a tilt rotor, much faster, much uh, longer range, even though everybody understood that there was unlikely to be a one-for-one -one replacement. So that's going to be very interesting. And tracks with stuff that folks at, you know, I remember after uh, the down select decision and we discussed it, right? I mean, the folks at Lockheed and Sikorsky were like, look, we're, we're going to do everything we can uh, to try to, you know, undermine uh, uh, Flora. Uh, and try to sell as many Blackhawks as we could, even though there was some indication that the army was actually going to try to balance this uh, strategy. Richard, uh, anything you want to add on the uh, spirit uh, front uh, or the uh, Textron front or any other front that we haven't yet discussed? Well, you know, just to point out on, you know, the 280, it's not surprising uh, about, you know, the Blackhawk just because it was always going to be a high-low mix. You know, I mean, these are Ferraris uh, designed to help the the army operate in the Pacific Rim, um, they're going to probably cost at least two to two point five. What a Blackhawk costs, you just can't afford to, uh, you know, recapitalize Army aviation with V280s. You use it as, you know, they'll probably get I don't know four hundred or something like that, like the Marines did with V22s. But the bulk of stuff that has to be lifted, you know, uh, fifty, a hundred, two hundred miles, whatever. It's still going to be done by a Blackhawk, so not a surprise at all that there'll be a Smart Hawk. Good Lord, we're running out of letters for the UH-60 series, so may as well start renaming them. Um, interesting about, you know, Textron. I'm not so sure it was a surprise. You know, we all knew the 280 um, was badly needed by them to avoid nothing good at all because, you know, you had the H-1 series ramping down the V-22 ramping down all these things were ramping down the v280 is a fantastic win that'll start producing fantastic revenue towards the end of the decade but until then a bit of a trough that i guess has resulted in the employment uh, adjustment um, i i just uh, want to point out to the audience though right i mean the united states marine corps has almost 400 v22s the u.s air force is operating them Right. Uh, and the V-280 is supposed to be a much cheaper variant, uh, much cheaper version of the airplane, even with a, a slightly smaller uh, passenger, uh, a smaller uh, passenger cabin. So it is going to be interesting. And I think it is a game changing uh, capability. And if you talk to U.S. Army leaders, they want to use this everywhere. They see this as relevant um, in um, you know, the Indo-Pacific as they do in Europe, as they do in the Middle East. I mean, I was talking to a, um, uh, we were both uh, at an event. Uh, together and uh, talk to uh, one of uh, the Marine Corps' uh, greats, uh, avi Marine Corps aviation greats. And one of the things he pointed out is, you know, there were, uh, you know, terrorist leaders uh, in Afghanistan who thought that they were beyond the reach of helicopters, will have plenty of warning. And, you know, when the Marines used V-22s, they actually managed to nab the guy because they didn't expect anybody could go that far that fast. Uh, and that deep, uh, a lot of different ways of using the capability. Interesting story in the New York Times about air traffic uh, control uh, and some of the challenges uh, that we've been experiencing. Obviously, there have been congressional hearings, which we discussed. Uh, Sash, you've talked to us about, you know, so how to, you know, Europe has been uh, trying to maintain aviation safety. The more traffic we have come back, um, some of these folks are overworked and overloaded. Uh, and it is a very stressful job, as we've always known. We've achieved an incredible degree of safety in the air traffic system, but then again, the number of sheer near misses, like stuff that should not happen, is increasingly happening. You know, my wife and I were on our return uh, from our trip to Paris. We're on a fully loaded triple seven uh, Air France triple seven, and the pilot aborted literally at the last second, and we climbed back up and went back in the pattern, and we landed uh, again. Richard, if you want to kind of start this off, uh, 
you know, what what is what does this mean at a time when, you know, I mean, at, at the at the end of the day, this is a critical capability. It's as much about the safety of the aircraft and the competence of the air crews as it is, you know, and, and maintenance crews as it is the folks who are in control of this air traffic control system. I mean, at the end of the day, these got, folks are spotting an obstructed runway and aborting. They might not, you know, TCAS uh, collision avoidance helps you. But at the end of the day, these guys listen to the orders that they're given. And if they can't see, you know, in a bad weather condition, you might actually have a collision or uh, another mishap. Anyway, you know, what, what what does this mean? And what's your sense on how how it is that we're going to be attacking this? Because, as you know, Sasha said in the past, and I think Ron said in the past, this is a systemic thing, not an, you know, necessarily an individual thing. Yeah, obviously more oversights welcome. <laughs> you know, clearly, as someone who flies like you do um, and, uh, and our families do, you know, it, more oversight, please. But at the end of the day, let's not kid ourselves. This is a labor market issue. You've got an exceedingly tight labor market. You have this job. Um, it, it pays well, but it is really super stressful. Uh, you're going to have a hard time getting adequate numbers of people and not overworking them. So at the end of the day, this needs to be something of a, in addition to that oversight, uh, a market-based solution, maybe more money. I, I don't know what it is, but it, it's not just a question of, uh, and not just a question of, you know, cracking down. Sash, anything I'm, we can I'm, pick up from Europe on this? Well, I'm, I'm not sure about Europe, but I mean, it seems to me this is just a reprise of the original uh, uh, New York Times article, Pushing Tin, written in 1996. What goes around comes around, but it's only 27 years. But th this is life as an air traffic controller, unfortunately. But as uh, Richard said, actually, the pay and the pay relative is a lot better than it was um, uh, at, at that time. If there's going to be a resolution of this, I would suggest that there's going to be two areas that are the easiest for the regulatory uh, authorities to deal with. Um, one is fewer uh, slots and hence a move to larger aircraft. Uh, larger aircraft, fewer slots, you reduce the, the strain on the system. And the second is this, is, this makes life for uh, urban air mobility really hard because urban air mobility just clutters up the airspace. Uh, and that is exactly what air traffic controllers don't need. Everyone claims it can be automated out. Um, we will, you know, we, we may see, but the default will be to say no to UAM because larger aircraft carrying more passengers longer distances will be the, the you know, the public priority. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. I uh, hope you guys have uh, a terrific weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again uh, next week. Thanks so very much. As always, Vargo, great to be here. Yeah, thank you, Vargo. Yeah, thanks very much. Great to be on. And uh, thanks to all of you for joining us, and a special thanks to uh, Bell and all of our sponsors uh, for their generous support that makes this program possible uh, each day and each week. We'll see you again tomorrow for our Look Ahead program. Uh, until then, have a great day, and we'll see you soon.